0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. First things first, Happy New Year everyone, by which I clearly mean hashtag fuck off 2020 and hashtag hello 2021. As we roll out of one political age and into another, from the Trump era to the Biden era, a great deal of change is afoot in the political world. But no matter who is in the White House or which party controls Congress, some huge and hugely troubling issues, as Jesus said of the poor, we always have with us. And one of those issues is guns and the carnage that has been part and parcel of the profusion of firearms in America. So as we head into what we all dearly hope will be a brighter and more hopeful future than the recent past we all endured last year, I thought it would be good to check in with a central figure in the fight against gun violence and for gun safety, Shannon Watts.
1: The state of our union when it comes to guns is actually a lot better than many Americans realize that we are making true progress in state houses and in boardrooms in this country. And I think we're on the precipice of major national change.
0: Shannon Watts is the founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, a self-described accidental activist who, in the space of less than a decade, emerged as the face of a grassroots movement that, with six million supporters, now boasts more members than the dreaded NRA. Shannon's transformation was unexpected and took place in something like a heartbeat. Before the horrific Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, shocked and shook the nation in December 2012, Shannon was a stay-at-home mom living in Zionsville, Indiana. The day after Sandy Hook, she started a Facebook group page to connect with other parents who were scared and outraged by the epidemic of school shootings plaguing America. Shannon had only 75 friends on Facebook, but she titled the page, One Million Moms for Gun Control. The conversation she started there took hold quickly, with thousands rallying to a march she organized the next month in Washington, D.C., hundreds of volunteers lobbying Congress, and Moms Demand Action taking shape as an advocacy group based loosely on the model of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. By the end of 2013, the group had 130,000 members and chapters in all 50 states and announced that it was joining forces with Mayors Against Illegal Guns to form the umbrella group Every Town for Gun Safety, largely financed by former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg. Since then, every town has become a political juggernaut, spending millions of dollars to support candidates, legislative campaigns, and corporate reform efforts, and changing the political dynamics around gun control in ways large and small, subtle and profound. I wanted to talk to Shannon Watts about all of this, as well as the areas where progress has been harder to achieve, about the disheartening increases in gun sales, mass shootings, and domestic violence last year during the COVID lockdowns, about the crisis at the NRA, and the roughly three dozen Moms Demand Action volunteers who ran for office up and down the ballot and won, about the pivotal roles of women and young people in the gun safety movement, and whether the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris suggests reason for optimism that common sense gun reform might finally have a chance at the federal level, or if the chasmic political divide on display in the 2020 election and its aftermath means that Congress will remain as stubbornly resistant to positive change as ever. And in fact, Shannon and I covered all of that and more in a conversation where heart and hope consistently won out over hell and high water.
2: Just briefly, sir, can I just ask, is there anything in your mind that the president can do now to make this any better?
0: Uh, what do you think? Um, you know the shit he's been saying. He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I, I don't know, like members of the press, what the fuck? No. Hold on a second. You know, uh, I, I, it's, it's, these, um, it's these questions that you know the answers to. I mean, connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism. He's promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence. He's inciting racism and violence in this country. So, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know what kind of question that is. I mean, so that was Better O'Rourke in a famously viral moment after the mass shooting in El Paso. And uh, one of the things that kind of contributed to his passion and his national profile on the subject of gun reform. And we are here today with Shannon Watts from Moms Demand and Everytown and all of those organizations that are trying to make the world better on this front. Shannon, it's good to see you. How are you doing?
1: Oh, it's wonderful to see you. And, uh, you know, it's a new year and a new beginning. And, and I think that this issue will be front and center.
0: You know, I started by playing Beto just because in this podcast, I like to talk a little bit about the present And then a little bit about the past and then a little bit about the future. And so for our purposes, the present really still is 2020. And I think of that moment in the presidential campaign when, you know, if there was any issue that better work seemed to have some traction in the national dialogue, it was obviously around guns. And in that moment, when his hometown, the place he lives, the place he works was afflicted by the all too common plague of a mass shooting Um, that obviously emotional and genuine and spontaneous on camera moment sort of uh connected with a lot of people and I wonder you know whether as we just think about this past year I know you're optimistic about the future we will talk a lot about that today 2020 was a weird year in a lot of in a lot of ways you know among the many issues that did not really seem to ever really get, litigated in the presidential campaign once we got into 2020 you know the issue of guns was not an issue that really was front and center in the presidential race at least right i mean obviously joe biden and donald trump had very different positions on the question but it was not you know front and center in the way that maybe uh that that maybe it could have been or should have been and i wonder whether you're disappointed at all in the notion that another presidential campaign goes by in which this issue was not pivotal to the outcome or central to the debate uh, in what was obviously a a big and important, maybe life-changing election for a lot of people?
1: I I guess I would argue that a little bit with you, and and you probably won't be surprised uh, given what I do as a full-time volunteer. But I felt like it was a big part of the discussion, certainly COVID. And as that became a, a national crisis, took center stage. But It's important to remember that there wasn't a single Democrat running for president that didn't support this issue. And in fact, they were competing with one another during the primaries to see who could be the best on the issue of gun safety. And that is a sea change in American politics. I think it's important to go back really quickly to 2010, when a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. If you flash forward to the 2020 elections, only one member of Congress, a man in Minnesota, had an A rating from the NRA. He did lose. Uh, He lost to an even more extreme candidate. And that's a whole nother discussion. But my point being that we have come so far on this issue that for many years, people considered a political third rail. And now you really do have to be on the right side of this issue, at least as a Democrat, to even be considered a contender.
0: That has certainly been a sea change. It's no longer sort of the third rail. And, you know, in my generation, you think about so many Democrats had their consciousness shaped around this in the early 1990s by taking votes on the assault weapons ban and then being targeted by the NRA. And these were all kind of cautionary tales. You know, if you take a tough vote on gun control, the NRA will come after you, you'll lose your seat. And so that that tended to instill caution well, there's still a lot to discuss, I think, in terms of the the congressional situation, because it's not been a lot of progress on that front ever since. But I think you're right, certainly, in terms of how the playing field has shifted. And now, in at least in the Democratic Party, as you say, the competition is who can be best on gun control, gun safety, gun sensible, gun sense reform. You know, I said 2020 has been a weird year. And I guess I just want to get your sense of it. I mean, I've been looking at these statistics and... I don't know what I thought would happen in COVID. I mean, if you would asked me, there's going to be a giant pandemic in America, what will happen to the question of mass shootings? What will happen to gun homicides? What will happen to gun ownership? I don't know that I would have surmised that what did happen would happen, um, which is that everything went up like everything went up, right? I mean, even the things that you don't think should have gone up, like school shootings, because there were people in school, there's more school shootings, more mass shootings, more gun homicides, more domestic abuse, more like there's not a metric by which 2020 wasn't an off the charts bad year when it comes to guns. Was that what you expected when we went into lockdown?
1: Yes, absolutely. Look, we have 400 million guns in this country and very few gun laws. And We now look back on those first few months of the COVID crisis and can see that there was a historic number of gun sales, many of those to first-time buyers who may live in states that don't require permitting or training. And we were seeing these calls to suicide hotlines and to domestic violence hotlines spike. And so the logical outcome of those things is to see COVID exacerbate gun violence two crises two uniquely american crises that are spinning out of control we know that women are isolated with domestic abusers many of whom have easy access to guns we know tens of millions of kids are home unexpectedly from school also with easy access to guns we know americans are struggling with isolation and concerns about their economic welfare, also with easy access to guns. We know that in city centers in this country where they rely on violence interruption programs that can no longer get out in their communities and interact, again, with easy access to guns. And so sadly, this is sort of the logical outcome of allowing essentially gun lobbyists to write our gun laws for decades.
0: I think I'm right when I say we don't have, because of the nature of our system, we don't have really a comprehensive database for gun sales, right? We don't really know how many guns got bought. We do know how many background checks there were. Exactly.
1: Looking. That's exactly right. Because so, many people don't realize, I sound like Donald Trump, many people don't realize that, <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> you don't sound anything
0: like Donald Trump. I don't think you have to worry about that. Thank
1: you. Thank you. It, you know, in this country, when you buy a gun from a licensed dealer, by law, you have to have a background check. Now, there's something called the Charleston loophole, which means that if in three days a background check hasn't cleared, that dealer can go ahead and sell the gun. Now, that, again, is being exacerbated by COVID because there's this huge backlog of guns being sold and and the time to do a background check has slowed down. But in this country, also on unlicensed gun sales no background checkers are required except now in 22 states, right? So that means that those aren't being tracked and taken into account.
0: I don't think we have a complete number for 2020 yet, but I think at the end of November, it was 32 million, some background Mm -hmm. checks, which is a record setting number. And as you say, I think a lot of you know, From what you can tell anecdotally, at least a lot of people are first-time buyers, and obviously that leads to a lot of unintentional shootings, and you're not just talking about murders and other acts of premeditated violence. You're talking about suicides and a lot of unintentional shootings that take place, and that's obviously been a huge problem. Again, I say the statistics are all up. There's another problem, though, right, which is why do you see an explosion in, in firearm acquisition and background checks? And you know, there was a, a part of our political spectrum that chose to... Uh, seize on the pandemic to try to drive the rhetoric of fear. I mean, it's the NRA most visibly, but, you know, a lot of gun rights advocates whose attitude is, you know, we use pretty much anything to try to scare people. They're coming to take your guns, which is a very common rhetorical trope uh, of that crowd. But in the in a moment of trauma, in a moment of national crisis, that's their go to move, right? Try to scare the shit out of people and say, you got to stockpile your guns because, we don't know when we're going to get out of this lockdown and we don't know what's going to happen next. And there's this is oppressive government and you don't know when they're going to come and try and take your guns. You need to be safe. And so go get your guns. And that works. Right. That has been an effective rhetorical posture for the gun rights lobby for a long time. And it was during COVID, yes. it seems to me.
1: Yeah. You know, every country is struggling with this COVID crisis and keeping it in check. Only America has simultaneously given all of its citizens incredibly easy access, unregulated access to guns. And that's a a recipe for disaster. And we have seen the NRA engage in this kind of rhetoric for decades. You can go all the way back to Hurricane Katrina and see gun lobbyists saying the only solution to natural disasters uh, is to be armed. Uh, We saw it after the hurricanes in Texas, where Gun lobbyists were actually able to go into the state and loosen gun laws to say, okay, well, you don't need a a permit of any kind to carry a gun in the wake of natural disasters. And so when COVID happened in this country, you know, the gun lobbyists saw dollar signs and we saw them put out ads and uh, amp up the rhetoric around the need to be armed. And they were able to get gun stores to be considered essential businesses in many places. Uh, The ATF allowed curbside gun sales. And when you think about it, you know, if you step back, it's insanity. And yet that, again, is what we've created in terms of a political dynamic in this country where the special interest is deciding what our gun laws should be.
0: Yeah. You know, so much of our politics are driven by the rhetoric of fear. But it's in this particular occasion, you already have so much fear And for completely natural and and predictable, and in some cases, legitimate reasons, I mean, people are scared in the middle of this pandemic. People were scared for a lot of reasons in the course of 2020. A lot of them make a lot of sense. And you see people who want to stoke that fear and then capitalize on it. As you said, you know, that crowd sort of had dollar signs in its eyes. And yet I've heard you say, and I've heard others say, you know, even as we've seen this rush towards gun ownership, in a country that loves guns, and there are were, there were a ton of guns already, it's kind of amazing to to think that somehow 2020 was unusual by our normal standards. But I, I said against that, this was not a great year for the NRA, right? This has not been a year in which, I mean, by some measures, by some political measures, the NRA is more on its heels than it's been, I think, in my lifetime covering politics. You know, it's dues collection is down. Wayne LaPierre is under investigation by the IRS for tax fraud. You've got Letitia James, the attorney general in New York, has launched a civil suit against the NRA. And then there's the larger political shift you talked about before, which is that people in the gun safety, gun sensible gun reform cause, but people in the movement have are on the front foot, right? And so to just talk a little bit about that, about... What has long been a David and Goliath struggle, Mm. um, kind of in the cliche, it's not quite like that anymore. It's starting to seem like a little bit more of a fair fight.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the NRA's calculus, the gun lobby's calculus, uh, their return on investment has been dwindling over the last decade on their election spending. So you've got that to begin with. And then you can see year after year, uh, like What happens to so many special interests? They got so much power and wealth that they began to think there was a different set of rules for their organization. And there was a lot of self-dealing. You know, we know they're under investigation for, for potentially being a foreign asset. Wayne LaPierre was spending tens of thousands of dollars on Italian suits and private jet travel. This is not how a nonprofit organization behaves. Certainly, they were acting with impunity and they are under investigation on many different fronts, but they're also in many ways broke. They have spent tens of millions of dollars on legal fees alone because of these investigations. And if you look at the bet they made on Donald Trump, they spent $30 million on his campaign in 2016. They really thought that they would turn right around and pass their priority gun legislation, which was really two things, concealed carry reciprocity, which means the lowest common denominator in a state to get a gun permit would apply to the entire country, right? right. It, would, it would essentially upend states' rights. The second thing they wanted to do was to deregulate silencers, which they laughingly uh, referred to as the Hearing Protection Act. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and it's, it's not a laughing those, matter,
0: but it really, it's, it's, I, at this, it's so absurd that you can't yeah. help but laugh or else you'll cry.
1: God forbid you wear you know, earplugs, but they failed on both fronts. It's really important to remember that, that we got so good at playing defense since 2012 that we were able to stop a Republican president and a Republican Congress from passing the gun lobby's priority legislation, and they've given tens of millions of dollars to these lawmakers. And so that is in many ways what is the beginning of the end of the NRA, I think, as we know it. Are they able to still juice gun sales? Yes, they are. And, and will they again when Biden starts to talk about executive actions? Yes. But the NRA does not have the same power that they used to have because they really had a decision to make, I think, after the Sandy Hook shooting tragedy in 2012. Come to the middle and support background checks or double down. I don't know if I'd be sitting here having this conversation with you if they'd allowed Congress to pass background checks. We might have thought, OK, our work here is done. Right. But instead, they doubled down and created really a whole movement of millions and millions of Americans. I mean, we're bigger than the NRI now that, that is opposing them at every turn.
0: Bigger by what metric?
1: We have about six million supporters. They have five. They claim. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of those people aren't alive and subscribe to their magazines, and you have to sign up as an NRA member when you buy a gun, that kind of the work. But we have this huge grassroots army of volunteers like myself who show up at every gun bill hearing, who have relationships with lawmakers, who have become political powerhouses, even in the reddest of states. And I think it was their worst nightmare that women and mothers would organize against them.
0: There's a very interesting multi-layered kind of thing going on here, right? Because on one hand, we have a sick society with respect to guns, right? And yes. um, for anybody who studies comparative crime across the industrialized world, these are all now, I remember back when that time when this was used to stun people, but you know, there's not really an honest criminologist who doesn't come to the conclusion that the thing that really sets everything apart is the difference between America's easy access to guns. And that's what is the difference between the violent crime rates in America and the rest of the industrialized world. And there are other cultural, powerful and cultural and spiritual elements to this that have taken hold in the country. And so you look at 2020, you look at COVID, you look at those stats that I cited earlier, and you think, man, this is a grim picture. And then there's this other picture, which is the picture I think you're pointing to, which I think it doesn't ameliorate the first picture's ugliness, but... It does seem to me that there's not going to be a thunderbolt or a lightning clap. Maybe it's a thunderclap and a lightning bolt, a thunderbolt. I don't know. Whatever that bad mixed <laughs> metaphor is. I think there's not going to be this moment where the NRA has now been felled and it is now no longer, a, you know, these legacy organizations take a long time to atrophy and they wither away rather than getting kind of knocked down in one fell swoop. But you can kind of see it, right? You can start to see the way in which the struts underneath it are kind of being kicked out and the hollowness of it is starting to be exposed by a lot of factors, including the ones you've cited just now. You guys spent what, $60 million or so on the the gun control, the gun safety, whatever you want to call it, that side of the ledger. You guys were out there toe-to-toe with the NRA and the gun rights people in the congressional elections, local elections across the country in in terms of the the broad spectrum of American elections in
1: 2020, right? Yeah. You know, I I always say this is a marathon, not a sprint. It takes most social movements in decades to get traction and create real change. It, it, I wish it would happen overnight. That's not the way our system is set up. Um, so often it is incremental change. But it's important to remember that uh, if you go back to the spring of 2013, when Manchin Toomey, and that was a bipartisan bill that would have closed the background check loophole in honor of the, the massacre at the Sandy Hook School, it failed by a handful of votes in the Senate. But it's important to remember some of those senators who voted against it were Democrats. Not a single one of them still holds their job. The lesson that Democrats learned after that was that with friends like the NRA, no one needs enemies. And that's because every Democrat who voted with the NRA was opposed by the NRA in the following election. I mean, if you look at Mark Pryor in Arkansas, he voted against Manchin Toomey. What did the NRA do? They went in and poured millions of dollars into Tom Cotton's campaign. And so that was a real turning point in this country. And it really started to show that the NRA's bet of doubling down was not going to pay off. So what did we do? We had just started as an organization a few months earlier. And and again, we could have said, okay, the country isn't ready for this. The timing is wrong. Let's go back to our normal lives. And instead, what many of our brilliant volunteers did was to pivot and to say, okay, Congress isn't going to do this but there are governors who will. And we can do this work in state houses and in boardrooms and eventually point the right president and the right Congress in the right direction. And so that's what we started to do. And since then, in the last eight years, we have now passed background checks in 22 states. We have disarmed domestic abusers in 29 states, and we've passed something called a red flag law in 19 states.
0: Hold on one sec, Shannon. Red flag laws are...
1: So a red flag law allows, depending on the state, a family member or a police officer to petition a judge for a temporary restraining order that will remove the guns from someone who is a a risk to themselves or others. Um, And this is something that passed in Florida, for example, after Parkland. It passed in California after the UCSB shooting. It's a really important tool for law enforcement to figure out if someone is, is truly a risk to the community.
0: So, yeah, that obviously would be an important tool. I mean, that's a preventative tool, right? You're getting ahead of a potentially bad violent situation with guns because you would know in advance someone was a risk due to mental health. And then you can intervene on the front side before an emergency happens, before something bad actually unfolds, Um, you know, red flag laws and disarming domestic violence abusers. Those are both like pretty big wins.
1: Yes. Yeah. Not to mention the dozens and dozens of companies that have now changed their corporate policies around open carry because of the pressure we've put on them. And that's just because we're women pulling the levers of power available to us. Now, I say we're women. We're actually mothers and others now. But we are the majority of the voting public. We make the majority of spending decisions for our families. And that's how we forced change. But the other thing we didn't realize was how much time we were going to have to spend stopping the NRA's agenda in state houses, right? These bills that they were putting forward just were flying through state houses, arming teachers, permitless carry, stand your ground, guns on college campuses. Really sort of the NRA's dream, which was you know a public safety nightmare, was happening in states across the country. And, and we now have a 90% track record of stopping the NRA's agenda year after year for the last five years. And so when you talk about how things have changed, you know, that's something the gun lobby never expected to not just have us play offense, but to be really good at playing defense.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that the the mansion to me thing seems like a turning point in some ways because, you know, it was a defeat, right? A kind of a bitter and brutal defeat in many ways for the movement, and yet also a turning point in terms of recognizing, you recognize a lot of things on the basis of that, right? In some ways, the Congress was not necessarily, not only wasn't the only game in town, but was maybe not the main game in town, and that if you were going to try to win, you needed to win as you said, boardrooms, state legislatures, local, all over the country, It was this was a thing that you know if you just focused on Washington, not only were you going to be frustrated, but it's actually not the place where most of the I mean, it's an important arena for change, but it's not by any means the only arena or even arguably the most important arena for change, given that it only touches on federal law. And so there's a big lesson in that, I think. Um, I remember hearing you talk about this. There was a moment where you sort of thought with that loss, maybe this is all over and that it's all going to fall apart. And then it turned out to be quite the opposite.
1: I have thought that you know so many times along the way, right? There's all these inflection points where you think, okay, can, can we go on? And we decided very early on as an organization that really our motto was going to be losing forward, right? You don't take on one of the most wealthy, powerful, special interests that's ever existed and expect to have a, a 100% win rate. We knew we were going to lose and we did lose, not just Manchin Toomey, but in state houses as well. Now we win more than we lose, thankfully, I'll tell you the story of Arkansas quickly. I think it's a a really important example. You know, I would go to Little Rock to visit our volunteers once a year for the first couple of years, and and they never grew. They were lovely people, but we would have lunch. And I think they just kind of expressed this idea that many people didn't think it was worth their time in Arkansas, that it was such a, a losing battle that they might as well spend their time another way. Right. So then what happened? A bill to allow guns on college campuses, even at tailgates and inside stadiums, sailed through the state house. The governor signed it into law, standing next to the chief lobbyist of the NRA. And it so pissed off, in particular, women and moms across the state that they came out in droves to volunteer for our organization. And we used that newfound strength in numbers to go back in immediately and carve out an exemption so that guns would not actually be allowed inside stadiums. And then the next year, we had two of our volunteers run for office and win. One of them ran against the guy that put the guns on campus bill forward and beat him handily. Yeah. He was a retired nurse and a mom's demand action volunteer. The year after that, we had become such a political powerhouse in the state of Arkansas. Again, we're talking about Arkansas.
0: Yes. We are talking about a, like, I want to like remind pause yeah. for a moment and say, we're not talking here about Washington exactly. state or Oregon or Vermont. We're right. talking here about Arkansas.
1: And there is a Republican supermajority and we beat stand your ground twice. And lawmakers were interviewed afterward. And they said that the NRA's agenda was too extreme for the state of Arkansas. So, would we be where we are in the state of Arkansas now had we not had that loss initially? I don't think so. And and, and right. that's that's the losing forward motto.
0: Yeah, losing forward is a it encapsulates a really important thing about I'd say about politics in general, but certainly about activist politics and try to take on big, strong, entrenched interests. where it's part of like a strategy of necessity, but also a strategy that has innate kind of inherent power to it. If you can embrace it, um, I want to just ask you one last thing real quick before we take a break. I, I think, you know, in this cycle, in addition to spending a lot of money to try to help candidates and help your causes across the country, I think it's now the case that there's 35, maybe it's more, 35 Moms Demand volunteers, mm-hmm. people who have been associated with the organization have went on and won elective office in in 2020? That, did that number ring a bell to you? Does that sound it's, right?
1: It's now 43. So, just this election cycle alone, we had over 100 Moms to Man Action volunteers and gun violence survivors run for office. We now have two volunteers sitting in Congress Lucy McBath and Marie Newman. Yep. But other volunteers won seats in state houses like Kansas and Wisconsin and Ohio. And even in local school board and city council races. And I think that is in many ways, mom's 2.0, right? This idea of moving, not just from uh, shaping policy, but to actually making it.
0: I want to come back around to that when we get into our more future-oriented part of this conversation toward the end of the podcast. Lucy McBath in the Georgia 6th, Marie Newman in Illinois 3, both important women and potential powerhouses in Congress, particularly Lucy McBath, who's an incredibly impressive woman, and there's much to say about her. You said 43 43 is the number now
1: 43 volunteers this election cycle that doesn't even include others who run in the past
0: as we're making up our our grand tote board here of 2020 Mm -hmm. the good the bad and the ugly that is a new thing for you right i mean that but not new as in there's never been moms demand people who've run for office before but that is a place where you're going essentially and this is one of the things i want to talk about a little later essentially what we're seeing is the difference between having marshalled moms and others not just moms As activists, it's now kind of making that shift from activism to policymaking and being elected officials who are getting actually into the positions where they don't have to be working from the outside, but where they can work from the inside. And this seems like in some ways a a landmark election. On that metric alone for your movement, this has been kind of a 2020 will go down in history as having been kind of a landmark year, right?
1: Yeah, obviously women are realizing that as the saying goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And women only make up about 17% of the 500,000 elected positions in this country. And what happens when you become a Moms Demand Action volunteer is you spend a lot of time in your statehouse and you realize that these are not rocket scientists. 80% of these lawmakers are men and they don't necessarily care what you have to say, nor are they geniuses. And if you are someone who is caring and compassionate and concerned, then you are more than qualified. To hold elected office and so i think it is a logical jump to spend all of this time as an advocate to say you know i i can actually be a lawmaker
0: if you don't have a seat at the table You are probably on your menu. And even for those of us, the rare person you run into in America who is in favor of cannibalism, they don't want to be the one actually on the menu. They'd prefer to be the one at the table. Um, We're going to take a break real quick and then come back with Shannon Watts to talk some more about guns here on Hell and High Water. Let's listen to some commercials.
2: We gather here in memory of 20 beautiful children. And six remarkable adults. They lost their lives in a school that could have been any school. In a quiet town full of good and decent people, that could be any town in America. Here in Newtown, I come to offer the love and prayers of a nation. I am very mindful that mere words cannot match the depths of your sorrow, nor can they heal your wounded hearts. I can only hope it helps for you to know that you're not alone in your grief, that our world, too, has been torn apart, that all across this land of ours, we have wept with you. We've pulled our children tight. And you must know that whatever measure of comfort we can provide, we will provide. Whatever portion of sadness that we can share with you to ease this heavy load, we will gladly bear it. Newtown, you are not alone.
0: So that is the 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama, speaking at a memorial service at Newtown High School in December of 2012, just a couple of days after the mass shooting in that school in Sandy Hook and up in Connecticut, a devastating moment. Obama had just been reelected in 2012 and then had to face the horror of Newtown, which he later said was like literally the hardest thing that he confronted in all of his eight years in office, Um, you know, we all know there have been a mind-numbing number of mass shootings and school shootings in America over these past 20 years, Shannon. But the one at Sandy Hook had a different kind of impact on a lot of people. Uh, Barack Obama, obviously, as I said, was one, but it also had a huge impact on you at about the same time. You were living in Indiana, not personally connected, even tangentially to this tragedy. And yet, you know, in very short order, you turned your life upside down and put gun control and gun safety right at the center of your life. You've told the story a bunch of times, but I'd love for you to tell it again here for the listeners of Hell in High Water.
1: So to give some background, I had about a decade-long career in corporate communications where I spent thousands and thousands of hours writing press releases and honing messages and working with executives and telling stories, right? So that was the background that I had. I took a five-year break because I was blending my family with my, my husbands together. We have five kids, (laughs) Uh, everything from elementary school to college at the time. And it was the end of that five-year break. I was getting ready to go back to work. I was trying to, to find a job and folding laundry, very cold day outside of Indianapolis in my home. And I see on the television that there's an active shooter in a place called Newtown, Connecticut. And it's right before the holiday. You're seeing this footage of of children being ushered out of the school, crying, Families showing up in the parking lot, terrified and devastated. And like the rest of America, you know, I just sort of sat down on the edge of my bed and, and watched this unfold, never imagining that the outcome would be so horrific that 20 children and six educators were slaughtered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. But I very quickly became enraged, and that was because politicians and pundits were on my television set so shortly after we knew what had happened inside that school, saying that the solution was somehow more guns. And I knew nothing about organizing. I knew nothing about gun violence. I just knew that that was a lie. I knew our country was broken, and because Congress had done absolutely nothing in the wake Of Gabby Gifford's shooting, their own colleague, I knew that nothing would be done. And so the day after the tragedy, I went online in my kitchen, on my counter, on my laptop, thinking, I'm going to join something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving for gun safety. Surely that already exists. Mm. And it didn't. I had 75 Facebook friends. I decided I would start a new Facebook page. I had just learned how to do that. I called it 1 million moms for gun control. Very shortly thereafter, my daughter who is gay informed me that 1 million moms was an anti-gay group trying to get Ellen DeGeneres not to be the spokesperson for Jason <laughs> Penney. Uh, and then I got a call from a congresswoman who said, if you have the name gun control in your organization's name, we will never be able to work with you. Uh, so our name changed quickly thereafter. But I started this Facebook page. And it was truly like lightning in a bottle. You know, you hear about that on social media and somehow at least one of my friends, 75 Facebook friends connected me to others and on and on and on until within a week, you know, I was on the front page of USA Today. So clearly this was something that was needed, something that was necessary. And and so many others had that same idea that day.
0: So here's a, a number of things about this story that I find you know, fascinating, right? I mean, the audacity of someone who does not have a background in activism, did not really know how to use social media, who is not someone who's an expert in this area, who had not even really been personally affected by this in the sense that you weren't like a mother of a, a, a victim of a, sh- of, a, of a school shooting or, or of a mass shooting. To just suddenly be like moved in the way that you just described. And again, the audacity, a million, you know, here we go, a million, you know, I'm just going to do this. And I'm not, I'm really not mocking. I find it like everything about the way in which you undertook this was sort of like, it was an invitation to naysayers who would have said, you don't know what you're doing. You're not qualified. You don't have the credentials. You're not really connected to this. Who are you lady? What gives you the right to do this? And it's a waste of your time. This will never change. This is foolish. You're an amateur. There's a million and not totally unreasonable objections to you undertaking this in the spirit that you undertook it. And your attitude was, and I know you will will not say this, but I would say this for you, which is like, fuck you. I care about this. I'm doing this and I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to see what happens. The chutzpah of it, and and I say chutzpah in the most admiring way possible. I don't know. Where did you get? I mean, it's the thing I most want to understand about you in some ways is like where that came from, because most people would have been afraid. And your attitude was to all of those objections was, thank you very much. I'm doing this anyway. I,
1: I think it's a few things. So first of all, there's something to be said for naivete. I had no idea. What I was embarking on. <laughs> None. Right. And look, if I had known immediately I would get death threats and threats of sexual violence to me and to my daughters, that I'd have to travel uh, with a security guard and use an alias for the next eight years, uh, would I have done this? I'd, I'd like to say yes, but I think there's some benefit to, to have been very naive. The other piece of it is I think it's just part of my personality that if you tell me I can't do something, I will double down. It's why I've been able to ignore those kinds of threats, I think, and stay focused. And I would say the the third thing is that I had this outpouring of support from brilliant, mostly women across the country, perfect strangers, who said to me, I will help you. I will bring the skill sets that you don't have to the table, and we will get this done together. And I just have always felt that incredible support. And You know, I talk about this in in my book where every obstacle that existed was removed. And I'll just give you an example. In the early days, I can't even tell you how many trolls would invade our Facebook page, right? Right. The families from Sandy Hook would be so kind as to give us private photos from their families to continue the fight on this issue. And and at that time, it was really to fight for Manchin Toomey. And yet trolls would say the most disgusting, horrible things. And I would spent hours of my day while I was trying to get this organization off the ground, banning and blocking and deleting trolls and their comments. And I can remember I was laying on the floor uh, of my closet crying because I just didn't know how I was going to keep all this up. Plus, you know, I had five kids and I got this call from a woman who said, I am in Indianapolis. I'm disabled. I'm home 24 hours a day. I noticed you have a lot of trolls on your social media If you give me your passwords, I'll just spend my day blocking and and deleting them. And that's exactly what she did for years. And it's things like that that made this possible.
0: There's another thing that made it possible. I think you happen to have been really lucky in terms of the timing, right? You know, if you had done the same thing three years earlier or three years later, you would have either been too early or too late, but you happen to hit that moment. You know, there was a, a critical mass of people out there, a genuine silent majority. Who were ready to be activated by the right kind of movement with the right kind of structure and the right kind of approach. You know, I think the other thing is reading Fight Like a Mother is the book you mentioned your book, and I'm gonna say it again for those, anybody who doesn't know what it's called, Fight Like a Mother, which is a great <laughs> double <laughs> entendre. You should buy the book just so you can have a book That's that right. says Fight Like a Mother on your bookshelf. You know, you're really in tune with a bunch of things that are very, again, as far as I know, although you had some political background uh, and worked in things that touched on politics in your life you were not a grassroots organizer or, you know, a community organizer like Barack Obama by training, right? But there's a lot of the stuff that you've done that it's really in tune with how you work grassroots now in this world, right? And there were things you didn't necessarily know that much about, as you said, about social media, but the embrace of social media, the embrace of volunteerism, the kind of understanding of how numbers um, in a world where we're constantly quantifying everything all the time now and the way in which you went about doing this was very much in sync with the new kind of model for how to mobilize change in this wired up connected world that we have that allows for a certain kind of social mobilization and, and activism that wasn't really possible. You know, not that long ago, these yes. things would have been fanciful and you happen to come along and just like right, the right moment.
1: I, I always wonder how Mothers Against Drunk Driving did it, right? Yes. Like, did they call each other on their rotary phones and or send <laughs> letters or, or drive to each other's homes? How did these amazing people organize and get so much done in a decade? I I do think social media has turbocharged what we do. I mean, when we were going after companies for their open carry policies, we were able to get places like Chipotle to change them in in just a weekend using hashtags like burritos, not bullets. (laughs) We're able to put pressure on, on lawmakers publicly online. We're able to ask people to call and to send emails like we're doing right now to defeat Stand Your Ground in Ohio. Social media has truly enabled what I call naptivism, right? So, when moms have that precious amount of free time to be activists, they can send a tweet or an email or a text, make a call on their iPhone. And really, the benefits of of this technology have never been more clear, right? We were going into COVID and just getting ready to hold what we call advocacy days. These are these major in-person, essentially lobbying days, right? Where we show up at state house by the hundreds and advocate for this issue. And so we had more RSVPs in Sacramento to show up for our advocacy day in California than we'd ever had before. And just days before we had to pivot to do it online. And we actually had more people participate than had RSVP'd. And, and I think the lesson that that's taught us is this technology allows us to be even more inclusive, more equitable. You can't necessarily get from San Diego to Sacramento, but you sure can zoom in during your lunch hour to have a conversation with your lawmaker. So I don't think we'll ever go back to doing things the way we did before, which was so focused on in person.
0: There, there's this other element, though, which is in addition to social media, there's also this obvious gender element to this, right, which you're very focused on, that the mothers, wim, women? Women? And mothers, two overlapping categories, but not synonymous categories, obviously. That that was the was where the the kindling was in a way to to drive this movement. And I think that's really the difference. It seems to me between this and mothers against drunk driving, which is I've heard you say at some point that our gun laws are what's the phrase that you used? Are are masculinity toxic wire. masculinity? That, right. So you know. Unlike the situation with drunk driving, where mothers were affected because they had lost children to drunk drivers, there was not, a, there was not an innate, uh, nothing about the laws they wanted to change had, I don't think, the same kind of quality that you're imputing to our gun laws that I think makes sense, that the notion that our gun laws reflect toxic masculinity. And so it's another thing that, yes, there have been movements of mothers and movement of women, obviously, throughout our, our history in politics and on the broader social Field of play, but the idea that in the moment when feminism and the intersection of feminism and politics was getting a certain kind of there was a certain kind of intersectionality that like guns would be a, an obvious place where that could be powerful. I should say that with those guns could be was an obvious place where it could be powerful. It was not. It's not obvious. I don't think. And I think it maybe had been obvious to you. But wouldn't necessarily have been obvious to everybody else that the right kind of rocket fuel for this movement was going to end up being mothers. And I don't think that would have been necessarily obvious to everybody, because I think you decoded a certain thing about the nature of our gun culture and the nature of our gun laws that wasn't maybe a thousand percent obvious to everybody who'd been working this issue in the past.
1: Look, this is a a fascinating conversation and and not without controversy. (laughs) I sure get a lot of blowback for using the word moms and moms demand action. If you look at the history of activism in this country, it is often women at the front line, often women of color on the front line of this issue. If you go all the way back to prohibition, right? It was really the first time women were allowed to get involved because men thought temperance was a Christian value and never could put that genie back in the bottle. Women wanted to stay involved in activism, and they, they have, from suffrage to civil rights to child labor laws, you know, all the way up to the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. It's really been women in many ways who have forced change, and I think women are often the secret sauce of activism. There's a saying that goes, you can't beat someone who doesn't give up. And when our children's safety and our community's safety is on the line, I don't think women, and particular moms, will give up. Now, is it anachronistic to sort of call on that perceived cultural value of being a mom? Sure. In a perfect world, women would advocate just as being women. But when you look at the fact that 80% of the lawmakers are men in this country, and that women have certain levers of power they can pull, and that men are innately afraid of mother figures, (laughs) it it has been powerful. And it's why, you know... Everyone from the president to to a member of Congress to people in their state houses call and ask for dozens or hundreds of our volunteers to wear their red shirts at their events. That is why. Because there is something intrinsic about a mother fighting for the safety of her family or community that is powerful. Will that always be the case in this country? I hope not. I I hope we hold 50% of the positions of power. but. You have to be pragmatic. And I think we are nothing if not pragmatic as an organization.
0: I asked my friend and fellow recount podcast host, Jennifer Palmieri, who obviously long career in democratic politics, who again works with us now here and has a podcast um, with the recount called Just Something About Her. And I asked her what I should ask you today, but I'm going to ask it and then I'm going to append a sub question to it, right? Her question was, why do Americans love guns so much? And my sub question, which we just talked through some of the gender dynamics involved is, is that the right question? Does America love guns so much or do American men love guns so much? And I don't mean to suggest there aren't women who love guns. There are women who love guns, own guns, shoot guns. I know you have said before that you're pro-Second Amendment and you're not, you know, you you don't think that you're not anti-Second Amendment. So we're obviously generalizing here when we talk on this level. So just to be clear to everybody, we all know there are women who love to shoot guns but well, there's the, the two-part question, which is Murray's question, why does America love guns so much? And then the secondary question, which is, is it really America that loves guns so much or is it really that American men love guns and that that is really where the the cultural, the attachment to guns is a very male thing in America? And it's that...
1: absolutely true. And if you look at gun sales, you know, about 10% of the, the gun sales in this country go to women. That has gone up and down a little bit, but stayed pretty much the same. So this is certainly a male-oriented issue. When you look at the average gun owner, it's a a white man over the age of 50. It's important to remember that about 17% of all gun owners own the majority of the 400 million guns in this country, right? So what the gun lobby has done is convince a small segment of the population that they need to own an arsenal. Right. And. It's also really important to remember that the NRA became this powerful, wealthy, special interest starting in the 70s. And it's something no other high-income country has, which is a gun lobby that has been so involved in writing gun laws and selling guns. I mean, the number of guns in this country has tripled since 1968. And so part of it is cultural, but a very large part of it is also political, and that right. is, lays solely on the the shoulders of the gun lobby.
0: And I think that's a good way to end this before we go to break, which is, you know, the reality is that. When you look at, at all the public opinion polling on these questions, you, you have 90 plus percent of Democrats who are in favor of gun safety legislation, various kinds. There's different positions on various on different proposals, but by and large, Democrats overwhelmingly favor doing stuff, to either eliminate loopholes or background checks or try to, in, to, to do things through a legislative and regulatory forum to try to make guns more safe. And Republicans It's not like you flip those things like 10% of Republicans, like roughly half of Republicans, right? So you've got a big majority for gun safety in the country. And that is both, you know, male and female. You don't get those kind of numbers in the Democratic Party if you're not talking about a lot of men as long as well as a lot of women, even though you have rightly pointed out the women have been driving the activism on this. But, you know, it's not like a, a stark gender divide where women want gun control and gun safety and men don't. But it's an interesting thing just because, to your point, which I think is... That there's so many issues in American politics where the way in which they are prosecuted in our politics by the organized moneyed interests that dominate the debate is divorced from what the actual public opinion of the country is on those issues. And this I could list 30 issues like this where it's just not where the country is. We're having a different argument in the legislative and political arena, especially in Washington, which is much more toxic and much more polarized than it is actually in a lot of the places in the country. And, you know, the reality is that guns are a tough issue and and it's different from in different places in the country, as I know, you know, but it is a place where there is much more common ground on it than our political debate has previously suggested And I think that's part of what you've also kind of identified over the course of doing this and part of why, as we move into our discussion of what's going to happen in the future, why there's a kind of a a cause for some degree of optimism about where we're headed.
1: Yeah, I think it's inevitable. As you said, you have 90% of Americans who support stronger gun laws, 80% of gun owners, right? Only about one in 10 of whom belong to the NRA. You have 74% of NRA members, that's a, a Republican poll by Frank Luntz, support Stronger gun laws, like a background check on every gun sale. So this is inevitable. I think what is so hard about this issue is that time is of the essence, right? Over 40,000 Americans are killed by gun violence in this country every year. We know that's going to go up in the wake of COVID. That historic number of gun sales we talked about earlier, those will have ramifications long after everyone has been vaccinated for COVID, after this crisis is over, the gun violence crisis will just be the beginning. And so it, it, time is of the essence. I know that this is inevitable, but we really do have to continue to put pressure on lawmakers to act.
0: All right. Let's take another break and then we'll come back for the last part of our discussion here today on Hell and High Water with Shannon Watts.
2: in their gilded House and Senate seats funded by the NRA telling us
1: nothing could have ever been done to prevent this. We call BS. They say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence. We call BS. They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. We call BS. They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call BS. No, they say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred. We call BS. That us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS. If you agree, register to vote, contact your local Congress people, give them a the piece of your mind.
0: And that was Emma Gonzalez giving a very famous speech that she, uh, still a high school student, gave at the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C. Shannon uh, Watts. The reason I wanted to play that clip. You know, Emma Gonzalez was an accidental activist, and I know you have referred to yourself on more than one occasion as an accidental activist. You know, you're not alone. A lot of the people who end up being central figures in the debate over gun safety turn out to be accidental activists, or at least, in many cases, unwilling activists who have been dragged into this debate, in many cases because of profound tragedies that have befallen them or someone close to them, uh, their community, their school. And in this case, these kids who had been at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, they became big, big, and really important and very influential voices in the debate after the mass shooting there. Emma Gonzalez captured in that speech something uh, really important. First of all, like, you got to love anybody who stands up and calls BS. A lot of what we do at the recount is called BS on politicians. And it was great to hear Emma Gonzalez doing it in that speech. But she was also kind of using that speech as a, as a call to mobilize her peers yeah. To create change. You know, we've talked on this podcast about how central women are to the gun safety movement. Uh, But it also seems that kids are really important to it. And they, in some sense, are the future of the movement. And one of the reasons why it could have legs into the future, you know, we've talked about a number of reasons for hope and optimism around this movement over the course of our conversation today. You know, we know that kids do not love politics, but on issues that they care about, they can be passionately and powerfully engaged. You think about, obviously, the environment is a good example of that, but guns are another. So I'd love for you to talk about the role that you see young people having in the movement for gun control and gun safety and gun common sense in the future of what you think the role of this generation, this young generation will be moving forward.
1: You know, we had a, a pilot program called Students Demand Action that existed in 2018 And then after the Parkland tragedy, I mean, it just took off. And local groups, just like Moms Demand Action, were formed all over the country. And I have been so impressed by their activism. You know, they have over 400 local groups now. Students Demand Action is one of the largest student-led gun violence prevention organizations in the country. During the COVID crisis, you know, they are sitting at home with all this free time on their hands and, and they've spent it working as activists. I mean, they registered over a hundred thousand new voters during this election cycle. And I think it's so important that they do activism differently than my generation does. They're much more savvy. They use different social media platforms. It's going to be really important. We talked about mothers against drunk driving. They still exist. Even after you, you win, you have to protect those wins and it's going to be up to this generation, which is aptly referred to often as the lockdown generation, right? These kids who have to rehearse their deaths in the bathroom of their classroom, as if that piece of wood is going to protect them from the spray of an AR-15, they're angry and they're right to be angry. And I I believe strongly that they will continue to stay on top of this issue and that it will be a priority for them. And, and we see that in the polling.
0: So... You know We're headed into this new era, and by new era, I mean the post-Trump era. We don't know what's going to happen to Donald Trump once he leaves office on January 20th, and we'll see what role he plays in the future of our politics and public life and the Republican Party. But we are going to have a new president, and I'm curious what you think about our president-elect and the prospects. You know, He is a guy who I've known for a very long time. There genuinely is very little that he's done in his long career in the United States Senate that he takes more personal pride in than in having, as he would put it, I beat the NRA. Now, the 1994 crime bill is a complicated piece of legislation. It's one that, you know, is a great thing that Joe Biden feels enormous pride for, but also that he's taken a lot of criticism for from the left for other reasons. And it's an interesting thing, you know, when you look at his policy, his platform, his promises for what he's going to do in office, he says, you know, I will beat the NRA again. And I take him at his word in the sense that I think he sincerely, honestly, really thinks that that is important to him and something he believes he can achieve. I ask you whether, having been through what we talked about earlier, seen how difficult it is to get anything done in the Congress of the United States, but also take into account some of the change that we've discussed. When you're looking at 2021 and beyond, Joe Biden's history, Joe Biden's commitment the pl- change playing field, both between and within the parties. Are you optimistic about the possibility of congressional federal change in the short term? Or are you still kind of like, this is the little mansion to me all well, over again? You,
1: you know, first of all, the very last time I traveled for Moms Demand Action was to Columbus, Ohio, where I stood next to Joe Biden with Moms Demand Action volunteers. And he was talking about how this was going to be his one of his policy priorities as president. And I truly believe that. I mean, if you look at at the people he's nominating so far, I mean, Susan Rice, she'll be instrumental in combating gun violence in this country and in her role as the, the director of Domestic Policy Council. And the bottom line is, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the strongest gun safety administration in history. So I am very confident uh, that they will act. Now, we don't know... What the Senate's going to look like, that obviously plays a big role in whether we'll pass legislation through Congress or, or whether, you know, we'll have to, to rely on on executive actions. But I absolutely believe we will see action on this issue in the first 100 days.
0: What is it that makes you think that the incoming Biden administration is stronger in its commitment on this issue than the... I mean, we know what the record of the Obama administration was on this, but we have, we have a prospective Biden administration that we can't judge yet because it hasn't been in office. We have an Obama administration that was in office for eight years and effectively did not move the ball on gun control in any meaningful way. So on one hand, you could say, well, <laughs> no matter what they do, the, the the record of the Obama administration is not that strong. So it wouldn't take much for the Biden administration to do more. But I don't think you doubt President Obama's, no. like, you know, his passion and his commitment no. on trying to fix this. So What is it that makes you think that Joe Biden will be able to accomplish more than Barack Obama did?
1: I think part of it is the the political playing field, right? Again, that we have moved the needle on this issue, which gives elected officials more freedom to act, uh, the expectation to act. As you mentioned, Joe Biden's history on this issue in Congress. He did establish or help establish the modern day background check system. He helped secure the passage of, of the assault weapons ban and high capacity magazine limits. He really did lead the charge after the Sandy Hook tragedy, which, you know, President Obama has said it was one of his greatest regrets that he wasn't able to get Congress to act. And Kamala Harris has an incredibly strong commitment to this issue as well. So, you know, when you put that together, and there's no doubt they understand how the COVID crisis is exacerbating the gun violence crisis. You know, we're having those conversations and we have put out an action plan around executive actions uh, that can be taken. On day one. And uh, we're very hopeful and, and confident that we will see action on that. And look, I, I obviously hope that the Senate ends up with a, a Democratic majority because they will act on this issue. But if that doesn't happen, there's still so much that can be done. And, and, and not just at a federal level, right? We talked about still working in state houses and even hyper local municipal work. All of it's going to matter, offense and defense. And again, you can't beat someone who doesn't give up, and Moms to Win Action volunteers won't.
0: We talked before about the waning power of the NRA and, and some of the dynamics that are in play there. We said before that the NRA had not had a great 2020 and a couple of the specific things that happened in 2020. One, you know, we have the head of the, the of the NRA, Wayne Lapierre, who's being investigated, according to the Wall Street Journalist is being investigated by the IRS for tax fraud. And we have the Letitia James lawsuit in New York. You know, these are things that could be mortal blows potentially to the NRA that could kind of unfold relatively quickly and could be very damaging to its ability to continue to function.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. We've always said from day one that our job as volunteers for gun safety is to shine a light under the refrigerator and force the cockroaches to run out. (laughs) And that is what we have been doing at the NRA. You know, we have been involved in these lawsuits when the NRA was illegally selling insurance that would protect people who were allegedly shooting in self-defense. It, it even includes psychological and cleanup costs, this insurance policy. You know, our volunteers in states filed lawsuits against the NRA. We've been part of different legal filings uh, around the NRA's behavior. We've certainly pointed out their corruption over and over again. And we will keep doing that. And we are very grateful that state lawmakers are taking notice in places where the NRA has established themselves as an organization like Washington, DC, and like New York. And these lawmakers have the ability to do everything from remove the NRA's nonprofit status to dismantling its board. And we're starting to see that have an impact even on the inside. I mean, if you look at NRA's re-election, which just took place it was not unanimous by media accounts. They were very clear to say it was the last time. We know there is a lot of infighting. There are people leaving the organization and and telling the stories of what went on. And I think it'll be very interesting to see if Wayne LaPierre survives in his role as the NRA's CEO in the next year or so. But the organization will eventually have to come to the middle or it will be extinct. And I just think it's, it's going to be really fascinating to watch this play out. They are on the ropes. They are weaker than they've ever been financially, even reputationally. And the A rating they give out is really a scarlet letter. It's no longer a badge of honor.
0: When you think about the ominous future for the NRA, there's the brighter, more encouraging future for Moms Demand and, and every town and all the organizations you're part of. I saw you're a, you're a board member on this group called Emerge mm-hmm. America, right, which is about trying to get women to run for office, basically, and trying to increase female participation and women who are going to run for public office and help them to win public office. And we talked a little before about the success that Moms Demand volunteers have had increasingly, you know, making that shift from activist to policymaker. When I think about your, the organizations you've been part of, but particularly the Moms Demand group, I think like, what's the future of Moms Demand? The future of Moms Demand is Lucy McBath, mm-hmm. right? That's like, that is the, she is kind of state of the art Moms Demand volunteer, African American woman from Georgia, a blue, a red state who runs, gets elected to Congress, makes the transition from activist to policymaker. She's kind of like the shining exemplar of what you're the, the next phase in where you want to go, Right.
1: Lucy is such an incredible force of nature and such a hero to me. You know, I I met Lucy in the spring of 2013. Her son, Jordan Davis, was shot and killed just 17 by a white man who said his music was too loud at a Florida gas station. He was killed just weeks before the Sandy Hook school shooting tragedy. And maybe because her dad was a member of the NAACP, he was actually an official there and an an activist. And maybe that's where it came from. But she immediately became an activist on this issue where she lived in Georgia. And I had a phone conversation and I said to her, will you be a Moms Demand Action spokeswoman? We were like four months old and didn't have any money to give her. And I didn't even know what that title meant. I just knew that Lucy was such an important voice. And she said, yes. Um, Our volunteers, because of her trials in Florida, I mean, that's why we have such an incredibly strong chapter in that state. She went through two trials. The first was a mistrial. The second, the killer was convicted of murder. And I can remember every conversation I would have with Lucy. Eventually, she became an employee at every town, And I would end it by saying, so when are you gonna run for office? And I'll be honest. I thought, okay, she'll run for state house, but she had much bigger and and more accurate expectations. And she called me after the Parkland tragedy and said, "I'm going to run for Congress." And she ran for a seat that had been held for thirty years by Republicans. It's Newt Gingrich's old seat in Georgia, and she won. Yes, it is. And yes. she won. And I do think it's such a, a powerful story about not just moms doing action. But about using your voice and what one person can do in America by being committed and refusing to give up. I mean, that's Lucy in a nutshell. You know, you also mentioned Lucy is a black mom. And when I got involved in this issue, it was as a white suburban mom. Because I was afraid my kids weren't safe in their schools. And so many of the other women who helped me start this organization were also white suburban moms. Shame on us for not realizing that 100 Americans are shot and killed every day and that Black women had been putting, you know, their physical bodies on street corners to stop bullets in their communities. It took far too long. But I also think there's an important role that, that we play because this work shouldn't only be the burden of black and brown women whose children are cut down by bullets in their communities it has to be on us too and i think that's such an important role for white women in america as activists which is to be doing this work because it does impact your sisters all across the country
0: it seems like lucy in some ways was a been a an exemplar in a lot of ways, but one of the things that she did was kind of to help diversify your movement in some ways, right? Lucy, it seems like has was a powerful catalyst for change within Mom's demand, and in addition to all of her other accomplishments, I just find her just an insanely impressive, uh, insanely impressive woman with an incredible story, and who's rapidly turning into a powerhouse on Capitol Hill. She's going to be an incredibly interesting career to watch going forward, and I wonder. You know, as you watch her, I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, but I'll ask you, is there a future run for public office in the future of Shannon Watts, either near-term or long-term? Is that something you want, something you'd contemplate, something you could never tolerate?
1: Sure. I, I think about it. I have thought about it. I'm always encouraging other women to run. And it's something that brings me great joy and satisfaction is to help women in particular run Uh, for office and and win, even if that takes several times. But I I don't rule it out. And I I don't know what the future holds. You know, I think it's so important, you know, we're talking about diversifying the movement. And I do think that it is important that other women, Black and Brown women, younger women, also have a, a, a voice in this organization, in this movement. And Another lesson I've learned is that that work never ends, right? We were doing a really good job, thanks to Lucy and, and others' help, of diversifying our, our policy portfolio and also our organization internally and externally. And then, you know, the Parkland tragedy in 2018 happened, and we almost tripled in size overnight because so many Americans wanted to get off the sidelines. Yeah. And what did those people look like who came into the organization? They look like me. And so that work started all over again, right? So the, yeah. the work never ends. But I guess that's a long way of saying, you know, I, I won't do this work forever. And what's next? It runs the gamut of uh, running for office to starting a shade garden. I'm just not sure.
0: <laughs> Did you say starting a shade garden? Yes. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. What's a shade garden? You,
1: you don't have any sun in your yard. So you start a garden that will grow in the shade.
0: Ah, okay. Sounds like a rock garden to me. Uh, All right. Let me ask you one last question, then I'll let you go. If you were queen, if I were queen, if you had the ability, like fiat, I know what your legislative priorities are at Mom's Demand, but I'm curious that like, if I gave you fiat and you could do three things that would most uh, directly, tangibly, and immediately affect this issue that you care so much about, what would those three things be if you were queen?
1: First, I would pass the legislation we were talking about before at a federal level, background checks, red flag laws, disarming domestic abusers, closing loopholes that allow easy gun sales to people who shouldn't have them. The second thing I would do is to fund city gun violence intervention programs. They are so desperately needed. Our volunteers work all across the country to unlock that kind of funding at a municipal and at a state level, but we need those programs now more than ever. And the third thing I would say is that we would require secure gun storage We've talked a lot about drunk driving. If you go back to the 80s and someone would drive drunk and kill their family, people would say, what a horrible tragedy that person has suffered enough. We can't punish them. And then Mothers Against Drunk Driving came along and said, wait a minute, you know, laws are the moral underpinning of society. We have to change this or this will keep happening. Flash forward to 2020, it's the same thing with guns. If I leave a loaded gun on the counter and my kid or someone else gets it, you know, it's a misdemeanor and a $400 fine if there's a death or injury. And we've got to talk more about secure storage. We've got to ask the question when we send our kids to playdates and families' homes. And when you look at school shooters in this country, most school shooters are students. And they have easy access to guns in their homes. So secure storage, I think, would be the third thing.
0: It seems like all of those things, if they were to come about, they would all be things that would have a manifestly positive impact. And none of them seem that wildly fantastical. (laughs) I thought at least one of these would be like a A more fanciful notion, but those are all pretty practical and pragmatic and and should be achievable. Maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe after this, after 2020, this horrific, as we exit this horrific shit show of a year and we head towards this brighter, more optimistic future that you've been sketching out today, maybe all three of those things that you just named will not be like sort of fantasies. They'll just become common sense and we'll get them done.
1: They will in state houses. We just need uh, the federal government to do it.
0: Um, Shannon Watts, thank you. Thank you. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Shannon Watts for being here. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. It helps people to find out what we're doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer.